Hey, Prestige Heads, Danny here. We teased at the end of 2023 that we had big news coming in 2024, and here it is. American Prestige has decided to partner with The Nation magazine, which will syndicate our free episodes on their podcast feed. We think and hope this is an opportunity to bring our message about the incredible problems with U.S. foreign policy to a wider audience. So to already existing Prestige heads, we want to thank you so much for all of your support, and we'd like to welcome the people who might just be tuning in for the first time. If you like what you hear, you should check out our Substack at AmericanPrestige.com, where we've got hundreds of episodes on a diversity of topics. In particular, I'd like to highlight our series with Rashid Khalidi on the history of Palestine, our series with Sean Fear on the history of Vietnam, and our interviews with people like Noam Chomsky and Pulitzer Prize winner Ader Ferrer on the history of the left in Cuba, respectively. If you subscribe to the podcast, you'll get access to hundreds of bonus episodes. Suffice to say, there's a lot of content we've got to offer. Happily for everyone, our partnership with The Nation comes with some perks. Above all, people who decide to subscribe to American Prestige at the founders level will receive a year-long digital subscription to The Nation. To subscribe, go to www.americanprestigepod.com slash subscribe and select the category of founding member. Once you subscribe, we'll reach out to you to see if you're interested in the Nation digital subscription to get your name and email, which we'll give to the Nation to get the process going. And of course, those of you who are already AP subscribers and who want to upgrade to the founder level to get the Nation subscription should see a button to upgrade on our homepage. And if you're already a founder, Jake will reach out to you to see if you're interested in the subscription. And if you are, you can give him your information. Okay, that's it for now. We'd like to reiterate our thanks to all of you. We really, truly can't do any of this without your support. That's kind of conversation between the soul. That's conversation between the soul and the Prestige heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with the major foreign policy news of the week, which is the case brought against Israel for genocide in the International Court of Justice. So what's been going on there? Uh, so Thursday was day one of uh, the two-day proceeding, uh, initial proceeding at least, the South African government, which brought the charge uh, accusing the Israeli government of violating the 1948 Genocide Convention in its actions in Gaza. Day one on Thursday involved the South African delegation making its case to the uh, International Court of Justice. Uh, day two on Friday, which uh, will probably already have taken place by the time uh, people listen to this, but uh, has not taken place as of now, that will involve the Israeli response. The South African case was, uh, I mean, you know, without editorializing too much here, was compelling. Their filing uh, seems to be equally compelling, the, the document that they filed in terms of making the case that what the Israeli government is doing and has been doing in Gaza uh, amounts to a violation of the Genocide Convention. They've used as evidence the conditions in Gaza, both before October 7th and since. Uh, they've used comments 
from a number of Israeli officials that have verged at least on the genocidal. Uh, and so they, they seem to have made a pretty compelling case. The first genocidal act committed by Israel is the mass killing of Palestinians in Gaza in violation of Article 2A of the Genocide Convention. As the UN Secretary General explained five weeks ago, the level of Israel's killing is so extensive that nowhere is safe in Gaza. What's going to happen it most likely is that the court will will hear tomorrow's uh, presentation from the Israelis, which is going to focus, I would assume, on uh, very heavily on the October 7th attacks by Hamas and other militant groups. They will try to make the case that that attack had genocidal aspirations, if not the capability of carrying out a genocide, and that what everything that's followed since has been in defense of Israel and of Israeli citizens. The court will hear that presentation and then will probably come back, I would assume relatively quickly, given the urgency of the situation in Gaza, will come back with some kind of preliminary ruling. It's unlikely that that ruling would take a final position on whether or not this does indeed constitute uh, a genocide. That could take months or, or longer but it may issue a preliminary ruling that could be anything. It could be you know, up to ordering the Israeli military to stop what it's doing and to, to you know, immediately kind of cease and desist. But uh, you know, I, I don't know. The court is comprised of uh, a, a number of judges. Uh, there's a breakdown of this at The Intercept uh, today, if people want to read it from Ryan Grimm. A number of them come from countries where uh, there is either a, a tremendous level of Israeli sympathy, I would say, or pro-Israel sentiment, uh, or from countries that, for their own reasons, may not want to see the Genocide Convention invoked at all because of the, the precedent that it could set. Uh, so it, it may be an uphill battle, but uh, a lot of international law experts that I've seen discussing this seem to, to believe that there will be, uh, at the very least, this preliminary ruling will uh, come down fairly hard uh, on uh, against the Israeli side, that, that there could be, as I say, up to uh, a virtually a cease and desist order issued by the court. Has there been any real reaction in either Israel or the United States? Um, the Biden administration has been dismissing this, uh, this whole case as meritless, uh, been very critical of South Africa. The Israeli government seems to be genuinely freaked out about this whole thing. They've assembled, first of all, a very senior kind of uh, robust legal team to go uh, to the Hague. Led by Alan Dershowitz, I hear. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I don't think I don't think Dersh made the cut, but uh, they've got oh, a number damn. of number of of people involved the uh, you know they've been very uh, angrily lashing out at south africa for for filing this in the first place and uh insisting that it's it's meritless uh, benjamin netanyahu gave a a somewhat spooked speech in english so you know it was intended for an international audience the other day uh, i believe it was on wednesday but i could be wrong insisting that Israel is trying, is doing everything it can to protect civilians and has no intention of occupying Gaza and all these terrible things that you're hearing are, uh, are you know, just completely wrong. So I think, uh, you know, they, they clearly understand that this is a weighty procedure and that it's the facts don't necessarily uh, work in their favor. The politics may, but who knows? Israel has no intention of permanently occupying Gaza 
or displacing its civilian population. Israel is fighting Hamas terrorists, not the Palestinian population. And we are doing so in full compliance with international law. I think the, the Israeli foreign ministry actually accused South Africa of acting as uh, Hamas's lawyers or something to that effect on Thursday after the presentation, which a lot of people pointed out uh, somewhat ironically, since uh, South Africa is trying to represent the civilians in Gaza, it means that the Israelis, I mean, it's sort of the Israelis conflating Gazan civilians with Hamas, which is the thing that they have to convince the court that they're not doing, that they're trying to surgically take out Hamas uh, without targeting civilians. So it's it's kind of counterproductive for them to even be talking that way. Uh, but clearly, I think, uh, you know, people in, in Israel, in Israeli leadership are, are shook up by this. So let's talk about um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to the Middle East. He's gone a bunch. This is like the most yeah, U.S. leaders. He's, he's yeah. gone a bunch. He's gotten nothing <laughs> done and he keeps going because, uh, you know, why not uh, give it another try? So you got to keep on trying, Derek. Uh, they sent Blinken, the administration sent Blinken to the Middle East again this week. Uh, he made the rounds, visited a number of regional capitals on Monday. Uh, he went to Saudi Arabia. Uh, that particular meeting seems to have carried some weight, which I'll, I'll mention in a moment. But then off, it was off on Tuesday to Israel. Uh, he met with the usual suspects there, Benjamin Netanyahu, Yoav Gallant, etc. Uh, then Wednesday, as is sort of uh, tradition, he made his trip to the West Bank every time a, a secretary of state at least you know, one who is not in the Trump administration, let's say, goes to Israel. They have to make a stop in the West Bank and, and uh, pretend that Mahmoud Abbas still matters and all of this. Uh, and then on Thursday, I believe, he uh, wrapped up the trip. I think this was the last leg in Egypt, meeting with uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi. The objectives here were uh, multiple. I think the primary objective and the thing that has the Biden administration most concerned is the possibility of escalation. We talked about this in our uh, special last week, but, you know, there is uh, the Israelis have undertaken a number of, uh, I would say, provocative strikes in Syria and especially in Lebanon uh, of late. And there is a real fear that uh, they are trying to pull Hezbollah or you know, trying or not that they're going to pull Hezbollah into a bigger conflict that would explode region wide. And the, the administration wants to avoid that. Blinken was there to kind of talk over some of these things and seemed to be pleased, I guess, with the progress that he made there to the extent that he made any. The other main focus was uh, kind of the, the same. I mean, it's like we're in reruns, but it's the same thing he, he's done every time he's gone over there, which is to try and convince the Israelis to ratchet things down, not to stop killing so many civilians, to stop talking about ethnically cleansing Gaza. You know, could you please just knock that off for a little while? Uh, and can we start to talk about a post-war scenario? And he must have, he, he did that in, in a number of the, uh, the countries that he visited and uh, seemed pleased with himself on, on Thursday when he was in Egypt talking to reporters, seemed pretty pleased with uh, the support that he'd gotten from regional governments, Turkey, a lot of Arab states, to involve themselves in a post-war reconstruction scenario, uh, investing, you know, spending money to, to uh, help rebuild Gaza, that sort of thing. The problem is 
Uh, he didn't get the Israeli government to sign on to any of this and didn't even really get the Israeli government to commit to there being a post-war Gaza uh, when all is said and done, which is still up in the air. So, you know, that's like a teensy little uh, monkey wrench here in the works, I guess. Uh, the one thing he did dangle, and I, I, I said I was going to come back to his visit to Saudi Arabia, there seems to have been some decision taken while Blinken was in Saudi Arabia to coordinate messages about resuscitating the uh, potential Israeli-Saudi diplomatic normalization deal uh, with Blinken saying, you know, this is something that can happen if you guys just, you know, tone it down and uh, allow there to be some movement toward a Palestinian state. And the Saudis uh, echoing that message, Saudi officials, I think the, their ambassador to the, the UK was out in front of this saying, you know, we're prepared to negotiate with the Israelis, but we want a firm commitment on something that will lead to a Palestinian state. Uh, so, you know, there's some some coordination of messaging, I think, going on there. And this is maybe the latest carrot that they're trying to dangle for for Benjamin Netanyahu and other Israeli leaders uh, to to try to get them to to pull back a little bit. So let's turn to the war and let's talk about there might be a strategic transition by the IDF now in Gaza. What has been said with regards to that? Yeah, so over the weekend, uh, the IDF, and then again on, on Monday, made a big deal out of saying that it had basically doing a mission accomplished routine with respect to northern Gaza, saying that they had dismantled the Hamas military framework, I think is the way they put it, whatever that actually means, uh, and suggesting that this was going to be some kind, this was going to mark some kind of transition to a new phase uh, in the conflict. They, they, from what I can tell, they did this in a, uh, fairly cynical way in, in that it was couched for Western media and was kind of swallowed by Western media, whole cloth, including especially the New York times, uh, as though this was going to mean some kind of lessening of the intensity of the violence and the bombardment. Uh, but Domestically, and in terms of what actually has been happening in Gaza over the last several days since they started talking about this, you know, shift in phase, is they've they've ratcheted up the intensity. Even while Blinken was there, which you would think, you know, maybe they could throw a bone to the U.S. Secretary of State by pretending that things were improving a little bit, but they didn't. So the the intensity has been going up, has been ratcheted up in central Gaza and southern Gaza of the the bombardments in those regions. So there, there does seem to be some move to transfer, to redeploy military units out of northern Gaza, either to send them to the north for a potential conflict, bigger conflict with Hezbollah, or to send them to other parts of Gaza, maybe to just pull them out and give them a, a little break before redeploying them again. But, you know, who knows? Now, the, the question that, that this raised uh, and continues to raise is now if you really are transitioning out of northern Gaza, could civilians start going? Could Gazan civilians start moving into northern Gaza to get away from the fighting in, this, in central Gaza and southern Gaza, uh, especially people who were evacuated or forced to evacuate out of northern Gaza in the first place? Could they start going home? Um, that seems to be a discussion that the Israelis would rather not have. They did agree, I think, while Blinken was there to allow the United Nations to send a team to northern Gaza to sort of evaluate the situation there. Obviously, it is not suitable for human life as it is, but evaluate the potential for maybe coming in and, and putting up a refugee, uh, displaced person's kind of, you know, tent 
camp or something, uh, some kind of rudimentary medical facilities, that sort of thing to, to handle uh, a resurgence of some kind of some portion of the civilian population back into that region. But uh, supposedly, and this is according to, uh, I think Axios reported this, uh, the Israelis were going to tell Blinken that they're not going to allow any civilians to go uh, to go into northern Gaza to get away from the fighting uh, until Hamas agrees to a hostage deal, which uh, you know is collective punishment. So you can understand why they wouldn't say that publicly. Uh, but that that may be uh, one hang up standing in the way of this. Is there anything else to say about the humanitarian situation in general, which seems very very bleak? There's nothing new to say. There was a piece in the the New York Times today uh, talking about the, the insufficiency of the aid getting in. Uh, people may recall that the Israeli government opened a second checkpoint in addition to the Rafah checkpoint. We, we talk, we've talked about this. Uh, they opened the Kerem Shalom checkpoint, uh, which runs from Israel into Gaza. And they set a goal when they did that of bringing in 200 truckloads of aid per day. They haven't come close to, to hitting that mark. Uh, and ac- according to the Times, citing a number of kind of aid, you know, officials uh, at the UN and other places, and a couple of U.S. senators who have, I think Chris Van Hollen was one from Maryland, uh, who have, you know, gone to the region to see what was going on. Uh, the problem really is that the Israelis are, are conducting these arbitrary, uh, tedious, inspections of every truck that comes through these checkpoints and it's really slowing things down. Now, the Israelis say they're doing everything they can to expedite aid coming in. It's on the other side. It's the the agencies are slow in bringing the aid in and accepting it and distributing it. The problem with that as a justification is the the reason that the agencies are uh, having trouble distributing the aid is because all the roads are destroyed. Like the road infrastructure is, is completely battered because the Israeli military has battered it. Uh, so either way you, you slice this, the, the inadequacy of humanitarian aid is, you know, on, on, I think the Israeli government's shoulders, the situation is extremely dire. There's talk of famine, which I don't think has fully kicked in yet, but once it does, could go very quickly. I mean, people like 90%, they're saying, of the population of Gaza at this point is is in serious, acute food insecurity. So that, that could start to really take effect very quickly. I swear to God, I have no more blankets, clothes or food for my children. This is my son, and I have nothing for him. He suffers from diarrhea and colic. I don't have disposable diapers. I don't have ointment. I don't have medicines. I can't even breastfeed him because I don't have food to eat. I put the juice of one tomato on a piece of bread until it becomes soft, and then I feed my baby. They're at a point where even even if they hit the 200 truckload mark, that's not going to be enough uh, to meet the the emergency. The only thing that's going to uh, that could have a chance of of fending off really forestalling what's what's uh happening is a, a full ceasefire an influx of humanitarian aid and the reopening of commercial uh, imports of food and medicine and other things uh to meet the the needs of the population so it's it's extraordinarily dire and and there's no indication it's getting any better Thank you, Derek. Um, let's move on to Iraq, where uh, the Iraqi government might be kicking out American forces. What's going on there? Yeah, so there is a possibility. Mohammed Shia Sudani, the prime minister of Iraq, has been talking for a few days now uh, about 
possibly uh, asking the United States to remove its forces who are there ostensibly uh, still to deal with Islamic State, even though that's a pretty tenuous uh, justification at this point. Uh, this comes after uh, last week the U.S. military carried on an airstrike in Baghdad that killed uh, a man named uh, Abu Taqwa, who went by the name Abu Taqwa, who was a commander in one of the many Iraqi militias that have ties to Iran. He was also the deputy head of operations in Baghdad for the Popular Mobilization Front, which is sort of the uh, above board arm of, of the militia movement that is actually, uh, at least technically, a, a security part of the Iraqi security apparatus. So uh, this was a they were killing a, a, an official in the Iraqi government, basically, when they uh, they carried out this attack. And, and this is part and parcel of the U.S., uh, you know, especially since October 7th, but even before, uh, you know, any time it, it, its forces get attacked by one of these militias, it assumes the right to carry out retaliatory strikes or even preemptive strikes like this one seems to have been uh, without really consulting the Iraqi government, even though it's doing the, doing this in Iraq on Iraqi soil. Uh, and I think Sudani is at a point now where he can't, politically can't be seen to con condone uh, what is a, just a huge violation of Iraqi sovereignty, which the U.S. government doesn't necessarily recognize anyway. Uh, but it's politically very, very fraught for him. Now, Sudani has said he's given interviews since last week, since Friday was the first time he really, really talked about this. He's given interviews since where he said he wants uh, a quick departure of U.S. forces, but he's not putting a deadline on it. So I think uh, we could say he doesn't want it to be that quick. And Sudani has suggested or, you know, in, in the way that he's approached the U.S. presence in Iraq, it, it seems fairly clear that like previous Iraqi prime ministers, he's uh, not necessarily in favor of a full U.S. departure because of the uh, whole tug of war kind of push, push and pull dynamic between the U.S. and Iran jockeying for influence and, and the U.S., gives has given these guys sudani and his predecessors uh, a counterweight to iranian influence in in baghdad uh but as i say politically this this you know is becoming a very difficult position for him to to have the u.s continually carrying out these strikes uh so i, I think he wants to be to appear to be doing something to to rein the u.s in without actually doing anything to rein the U.S. in. And that seems to be the way that the Biden administration is handling it because they're barely even commenting. Uh, and, and anything that they say kind of uh, off the record to reporters is, has been, uh, you know, we don't think he's really serious about this, so we're just going to kind of let it go. Let's move to Lebanon, where there might be a potential for escalation of the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hezbollah. Yeah, we've we talked about this again in our special last week, but there was, uh, you know, things have been very tense uh, since uh, really uh, earlier this month, last uh, Tuesday, I believe, uh, when the uh, the the Israeli military carried out an airstrike in Beirut, in southern Beirut, that killed uh, the deputy political. Uh, a deputy leader of, of Hamas's political wing, um, Saleh al-Aruri. The attack crossed a, a pretty significant red line for Hezbollah, which uh, has been seemingly content with kind of trading pot shots with the Israelis in southern Lebanon, but is always regarded an Israeli attack on Beirut as a, 
uh, as something more serious. And so, uh, you know, in the wake of that attack, there's been a lot of concern about the potential uh, for escalation. There have been, you know, seemingly more and more serious back and forth uh, attacks in southern Lebanon, both, uh, you know, from uh, Hezbollah attacking positions in northern Israel and the Israelis attacking uh, Hezbollah positions. They killed another, uh, they could have killed a senior Hezbollah commander or a couple of them uh, over the course of this week. So, uh, you know, there is a, a great deal of urgency here and I think concern about the possibility of a wider conflict. Uh, the Biden administration dispatched uh, Amos Hochstein, who is a, an advisor to President Biden on energy issues, but has been serving as a sort of informal Lebanon envoy for the administration as well. They sent him to the region for talks with the Lebanese government. And, you know, uh, as you might expect, they are putting the onus on Lebanon and Hezbollah in particular uh, to avoid escalation, despite the fact that it's been Israeli actions that have been, I think, more provocative here. Uh, the Israelis are demanding that Hezbollah redeploy its forces north. Uh, there is a UN resolution, UN resolution, Security Council Resolution 1701, which ended the 2006 Lebanon War, that does uh, seem to call for uh, the redeployment of Hezbollah forces north of the Latani River. It calls for only regular Lebanese military to, to be deployed south of the river, which is, puts them right on the Israeli border. The Israelis are demanding, after all this time of you know Hezbollah really not abiding by this resolution, they're now demanding that they they do this, or they're going to continue. They say they'll continue these uh, kind of more escalatory uh, actions, and and you know n nobody knows obviously at what point uh, Hezbollah, which has seemed very reluctant to get to take things to another level, uh, but at what point they're going to feel compelled to to kind of play along. Uh, but it's. Uh, you know, something to, uh, as we've been saying, something to, to watch for. Let's stay in the region and let's turn to Yemen, where it looks like there's an imminent danger of American and British strikes against the Houthis. Yeah, this, this has been reported in a number of places. Uh, the Guardian, for example, just before we recorded this, uh, may already have taken place by the time people listen to this. Uh, but they've been reporting that that the U.S. and U.K. are preparing to launch some kind of attack on Houthi positions uh, in northern Yemen. Now, uh, the, the Houthis or Ansar Allah, the, the northern Yemeni rebels, uh, have been repeatedly attacking commercial shipping in the Red Sea. They have had uh, a significant effect on you know a number of shipping companies kind of diverting their vessels around Africa and uh, to to avoid this this corridor, which of course creates a lot of uh, problems for global shipping. And it's been you know there's been kind of this uh, how much longer is this going to go on before there's some kind of a response from the U.S. Uh, the Houthis on Tuesday night launched uh what was what's been called their largest single attack yet they fired 18 drones and three missiles uh into the red sea area around uh babel mandeb's kind of the southern red sea uh u.s and uk forces intercepted them uh and there was no actual uh, damage as far as i know to any commercial ships but it it seems like that may have been the last straw so uh as i say it's being reported uh, and I don't have any details because it hasn't happened yet, at least as far as I know. Uh, but it is being reported that that we're, you know, this is kind of imminent. It's going to happen uh, basically any time now. 
Hey folks, so I know I said uh, these airstrikes could happen at any time, and uh, they have happened. Uh, they happened before we produced the, the news episode, and I think producer Jake is going to insert this uh, into the news episode so that uh, we can be at least as current as possible uh, in terms of what's happening. So uh, the airstrikes took place. Details are very sparse at this point. I think they've just taken place uh, not that long ago as I'm recording this. Uh, what I've seen from the reporting is that at least a dozen targets were involved. Uh, the U.S. and U.K. struck, I think, with cruise missiles. Uh, most of the targets seem to have been confined to coastal regions uh, associated with uh, places where the, the rebels, the Houthis, like to launch drones, missiles, etc., or radar facilities and sort of command and control facilities for those launches. Um, I don't know any more details than that. There's no word on casualties. There's no word even on really damage, whether there was any significant damage done. Um, and, you know, we may have more uh, next week to talk about. Certainly, I think the Houthis will have a response at some point. But I uh, just wanted to keep everybody updated. Uh, as I say, the the attack has already taken place. And... Uh, We'll, uh, we'll see how it goes from there, I guess. Thank you, Derek. Let's talk about Myanmar, where it appears that rebels have captured another border town. Yes, this is last week, but uh, you know we've been following this three, three Brotherhood Alliance, the Rebel Coalition, and it's very successful so far, offensive against uh, Myanmar security forces in Shan State. Uh, well, they had another uh, significant success uh, they announced on Friday, and and the junta um, that that rules Myanmar confirmed it later that they had captured uh, an important border town called Laokai, uh, which again, uh, like a lot of the other places they've they've seized recently, lies along the uh, Chinese border. It is a commercial center. It's you know a place where a lot of uh, trade comes through in in both directions. Um, you know, as as we've been covering this, the, the the alliance started a major offensive in Shan State in late October um, that has really caught the junta, you know, completely flat-footed. They they seem uh, still to be struggling to mount a response. Reports say 50% of the country is in their control, and the army it's suffering setback after setback. Entire battalions have surrendered without a fight. So the rebels are on the charge. I wouldn't necessarily say that the junta is in imminent danger of losing power or anything like that but certainly they are uh struggling at this point the, there's still an open question about uh whether the rebels are, are getting any assistance from the chinese government they have been targeting towns that are known kind of as as homes for internet scammers there's a lot of internet scam operations that are run out of this region and the chinese government has been particularly kind of insistent that somebody take action against these scammers. And uh, it is, I think, not coincidental that the rebels have been going after, and Laokai is another uh, one of these places. They've been going after these places that are uh, known uh, centers for these operations and, and probably at least, uh, I would assume, getting a thumbs up from uh, Beijing, if not other support. Let's talk about uh, the Sudan, where the RSF leader Dagalo has been on a regional tour. Uh, yes. So uh, folks may remember uh, before the holidays, uh, we, were, we talked about the RSF 
having captured the city of Wad Madani, which is kind of centrally located. It's uh, just south of, a bit south of uh, Khartoum. It had been controlled by the Sudanese military. It was being used as a basically displaced persons hub and a humanitarian hub. The RSF captured that city shortly before Christmas. Uh, and really, this seems, they, they are, this put them unquestionably, I think, in the, the driver's seat in terms of their conflict with the Sudanese military uh, and who has the upper hand here. And uh, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, the leader of the Rapid Support Forces group, uh, has since gone on basically a, a regional trip that I think is meant to uh, show him off as a potential head of state or at least a rival for uh, that that role with Abdel Fattah Burhan, who's the de facto Sudanese head of state and the commander of the Sudanese military. Um, he visited a number of African states, and in particular, he stopped in Ethiopia. And it just so happens, uh, I don't think this is a coincidence, that the former prime minister of Sudan, Abdullah Hamdok, uh, is in Ethiopia in sort of self-imposed exile. Uh, they did meet. Hamdok is uh, since kind of being ousted by the military, has formed a civilian political coalition called uh, Takadom or Progress, uh, and uh, is 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 pretty influential in the sort of exile or uh, you know uh, expatriate uh, kind of. Uh, community looking at, at what's going on in Khartoum. Uh, and he has, he could, if if he s- sort of throws his weight behind Dagalo, give him a fair amount of political legitimacy uh, in terms of, again, kind of establishing his bona fides as a, as a potential political leader, not just this uh, kind of military or rebel, depending on your perspective, uh, leader. So, you know, clearly he's on kind of a victory lap uh, at this point. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that the trip was organized by the government of the UAE, which has been a backer in the past uh, of the rapid support forces. UAE officials have insisted since the the conflict in Sudan broke out that they're not playing favorites, that they're not supporting the RSF. There's a, a fair amount of evidence to the contrary that they've been providing weapons, uh, et cetera. And, and uh, as I say, there's speculation that they, they sort of arranged this trip to kind of show Dagalo off uh, as somebody who could run Sudan and would be a, a UAE asset in that role. Let's talk about the deal that was recently signed between Ethiopia and Somaliland with regards to the ports. Uh, yes. So um, this was announced on January 1st. There was a memorandum of understanding signed by the government of Ethiopia and the unrecognized government of the Somaliland region, which is part of Somalia, uh, according to most of the international community, uh, but has declared its independence and functions essentially uh, autonomously from from the Somali government. Uh, They signed a deal that gives uh, the Ethiopian government access to the Somaliland port city of Berbera, including uh, a fairly sizable stretch of coastline that could be used and probably will be used if this goes through uh, as some sort of a naval base for, for military purposes. Um, it is, uh, I, I guess, a culmination, although I don't know if he sees it that way, of uh, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed's desire for a Red Sea port. He's been saying for a while now that Ethiopia needs Red Sea port access, that this is, uh, you know, holding the country back. And that's uh, raised a lot of fears about a potential war, another potential war with Eritrea, 
uh, that you know the the Ethiopians could try to seize part of Eritrea to, to establish such a port. But this is you know he's he's said he he doesn't want to you know he's got no military intentions. He just wants to kind of uh, secure access to a port somehow. So this could be the way, I guess. Uh, leasing access to Berbera and and uh, this land to potentially build a base. The problem is, of course, Somaliland is not a recognized country, and so uh, the government, such as it is, uh, and, and its legal right to lease off parts of its its own territory, uh, is very much in question. There's also a lot of concern that a deal like this could. Uh, have destabilizing effects on the Horn of Africa. The uh, president of Somalia, Hassan Sheikh Mohamud, uh, went to Eritrea shortly after this deal was announced to kind of commiserate with uh, Isais uh, Afwerki, the the president of uh, Eritrea. And uh, you know that's that's not great. That's a fault line. I mean, that's a potential military fault line if if the Somali government decides that this has gone too far and that it needs to take back Somaliland by force or try to. You know, you now have the Ethiopian government. There's been talk. They, they've supposedly held military cooperation talks with the Somaliland government. There's uh, obviously, you know, if this all goes through, the end point would be Ethiopia recognizing Somaliland's independence. Uh, becoming the first country to do so. So th- this is th- this is potentially rocky waters, and that doesn't even take into account how other countries in the region could react if the Ethiopian military suddenly has a naval presence in the Red Sea. I mean, the Egyptian government may not look very favorably on that. The, the Sudanese government, depending on what government Sudan eventually has, may not look terribly favorably on it. So there's a lot of concerns here about uh, about what's going on. Let's move on to Ukraine, um, where the Ukrainian government and military seem to be running out of air defenses. So what's been going on there and how has that affected the fighting of the war? Yeah, I mean, they're talking openly about this, that they're they're out of missiles or they're running out of missiles. And this was reflected earlier this week and, and, you know, has been in recent days reflected in a a fairly low rate of interception of missiles. projectiles you know the russians have been firing you know on a nightly basis almost a, a large number of drones and missiles uh, against targets in ukraine and uh recently it's become fairly apparent that they are no longer intercepting as many of them as they had previously been doing i think there was a a, a fairly sizable barrage uh earlier this week the russians fired i think overnight into monday uh, 51 missiles into Ukraine, and the Ukrainians only intercepted 18 of them, which is low by their standards. And the you know this so it was already kind of telegraphing the fact that there's something going on with Ukraine's uh, air defenses. But they're talking; they've since been talking openly about it. Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, and other Ukrainian officials are just saying flat out that they're running out of air defense missiles. Uh, they need more of these things. They would like more air defense units, but. Uh, you know, all the air defense units in the world aren't going to help if they don't have anything to load in them. Uh, and that's what they really seem to be running out of. Um, and and this this comes, and I mean, you know, more air defense has been a constant refrain for the Ukrainians uh, uh, requesting more air defense help from the West, from the U.S. Uh, but of course, this is happening in light of uh, the struggle for, that the Biden administration is having getting its supplemental war funding bill through Congress. That bill is still held up, uh, mostly if you believe the reporting over uh, border security 
dispute between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, it contains, you know, 50 to 60 billion dollars, I believe, uh, in potential military aid for Ukraine, but it's not going anywhere. And so it's not clear how Ukrainians can actually get uh, any more of these weapons. And th this is problematic for them. There's been a lot of talk in, in recent days about the Ukrainians maybe adopting a more defensive posture now that the counteroffensive, uh, the big counteroffensive has definitively failed uh, of maybe, you know, digging, digging trenches, erecting earthworks, kind of taking a more defensive uh, approach to the war. And, and instead of trying to drive the Russians out, just making sure that the Russians don't advance any more uh, than they already have. But even that, even that strategy would require more weapons at this point, especially to counter Russia's air superiority. So, you know, if if that bill doesn't uh, doesn't get unlocked, it's we could see a, a fairly, uh, I think, sizable shift in how the war is going uh, in not too distant future. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about Ecuador and what's been going on there. Yeah, this is kind of. Uh, chaotic and uh, we are going to try to do a special on this with somebody who can unpack it for us but uh, on tuesday the the country just kind of exploded violent criminal activity gang activity kind of took place all over the country there were bombings there were police being taken hostage uh, prison guards have been taken hostage uh, there was one incident in which uh, a, a group of masked you know gang members i guess uh stormed a, a tv station in guayaquil and and took over the tv station briefly took hostages while they were broadcasting so this all took place kind of live on tv noises that sounded like gunshots could be heard in the background one man is kicked in the face during the live feed which continued for at least 15 minutes before the signal was cut off police snipers were positioned outside of the tv station Inside, another man has several guns pointed at him as people shout for police to leave. And uh, it, it comes after uh, the Ecuadorian government imposed a state of emergency following the apparent escape over the weekend of Adolfo Macias, who's a very notorious gang leader, probably was the most infamous prisoner in Ecuadorian custody. He seems to have escaped somehow. Uh, I don't think anybody really has an idea of what happened there, but he's no longer uh, in prison for sure. I mean, they they, they can't find him. And so, uh, you know, that, that took place. And then President Daniel Noboa announced a state of emergency. And then just kind of all hell broke loose on Tuesday. And things have been tense since then. Noboa uh, in response to everything that happened on Tuesday and this, you know, the TV incident, which was uh, sort of the most public thing, but was really just the tip of the iceberg, uh, declared uh, that Ecuador is now in a state of internal armed conflict. Uh, he classified 22 criminal gangs as terrorist organizations. All of this was to sort of free up the Ecuadorian military to take a more uh, hands-on approach to, to dealing with these groups. Uh, and there have been scenes of military patrolling, soldiers patrolling uh, the streets of Guayaquil and, and other places uh, across the country. So, uh, you know, it's a very tense situation. Uh, there, there seems to be some kind of crackdown in the offing. At least Noboa would like to do that. Uh, he seems to be kind of taking as his model, Nayib Bukele, the president of El Salvador, who is done a very showy crackdown on crime in that country that has, uh, you know, caused a number of human rights violations, but that's, uh, I digress. But he, he seems to see himself in that light. And I think he's, he's thinking a, 
the so-called tough on crime approach might uh, might help him politically in addition to kind of getting a handle on uh, on this violence. Uh, this goes all the way back, I should say, to uh, something we talked about a couple of months ago, the uh, the assassination of uh, the Ecuadorian presidential candidate uh, via Vincenzo, Vincenzo, uh, you know, that was sort of, uh, there's been an ongoing problem with, uh, with criminal violence, gang violence in Ecuador for years now, but that really seemed to take things to another level in, in terms of brazenness and, and sort of the, uh, uh, the openness of these, these gangs to take action like this. And, and things have just kind of spiraled downhill since then. All right, Derek, let's end on, um, you know, our classic good news, and that is climate change. So I hear we solved climate this week. Is that right? Well, solved it in the sense that we've uh, had the hottest year on record last year. Uh, so if that's what we were going for, then we've done it. We did it, everyone. Uh, congratulations and, and, and to everyone. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now that I mean, you know, this is no surprise, I think, to anybody who listens to this show, but uh, or anybody who's been outside at any time in the last 13 months. Uh, 2023 was the hottest year on record. Uh, the Copernicus Climate Change Service, uh, which is the European Union's uh, a European Union agency, uh, confirmed that earlier this week. It said that global temperatures averaged. 1.48 degrees Celsius or 2.66 degrees Fahrenheit higher than they were than the average during the second half of the 19th century, which is sort of the baseline. Uh, it's when industrialization was only really getting started in, in terms of destroying the climate uh, of the planet. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the marker uh, against which the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement said uh, we need to keep temperatures to below a 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold, you know, we, we don't want it to get any higher than 1.5 degrees warmer than it was back then. Uh, obviously, we're pretty close to breaching that. Uh, you know, I don't want to leave anybody on a real downer, but, uh, you know, we're not to the point where I think climate experts would say we have hit a sustained uh, 1.5 degree warming threshold and have thereby you know, missed out on our, our uh, chance to, to meet the Paris Agreement's threshold. But we're close to that. And the question, of course, is, uh, was 2023, is 2023 going to be looked at as an outlier? Is it going to be looked at as basically the new normal? I would say 2024, probably going to be warmer because El Nino is still in effect and, uh, you know, it's still going strong. Uh, so, but, but, you know, we'll see. I'm not a, not a climate scientist, so don't go by me. Thank you, Derek, and thank you to everyone for listening. And thanks to all of our new listeners. We hope you enjoyed your first news update. And if you're interested in learning more, we're going to have two specials, one with Spencer Ackerman on South Africa's charge against Israel at the ICJ and one on the Ecuador crisis. Those specials are available to subscribers. And if you'd like to subscribe to American Prestige, please visit AmericanPrestigePod.com slash subscribe. And if you subscribe as a founding member, you get a year digital subscription to The Nation if that's something you'd like. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon. Bye.